Hey friends, I hope this podcast finds you well. This week, we are going to break our show into two parts. Two parts. This is part A. And the topic is when to engage. Just war theory, Ram Dass, and confronting abuse. Now really, it's the second part where we'll be spending more time looking at just war theory and applying it to problematic people in religious groups or families. And in this first part, we're going to give you a little bit more of the backstory as to why that was interesting to us, really in relation to three news items. First, our United States being on the brink of war with Iran and the question of who has the right and the authority to initiate a war. And another question, is it possible that somebody is bad and deserves, in a certain sense, to be fought against, but maybe the way and the timing of that attack might not be appropriate. Now, we're not going to get into the politics of it, and we're not going to spend much time talking about the particular situation with the, uh, with the action in Iraq against an Iranian general. What we are using that as is a springboard for a bigger discussion about when it is right and fitting that we should act. We're also noting that in the case of the royal family, Meghan and Harry quitting the royal family's duties is a sort of attack in its own way, that sometimes it's more problematic in communities when you just walk away from it and, in a sense, delegitimize it. We'll be looking at that. But we spend a lot of time here in this first half, this first part A, with the the way that Stacy and I had to wrestle with the death of Ram Dass. Now, that might seem odd to you, but Ram Dass is somebody who was kind of important in my very earliest days when I was a kid in the wake of the hippie movement in Colorado. And so I had these fond memories, and he passed recently. And I was telling Augie, my son, you know, that he seemed like a pretty cool guy. And then Stacy brought to my attention a, an article that had some criticism about it. I noted something that made me startled and, you know, mad at myself. And that is, I didn't want to hear the negative criticism. I didn't want to believe it. I found myself trying to rationalize away some of this criticism. And also, Stacy herself was quick to start to help me in coming up with arguments as to why maybe we shouldn't take it seriously. Well, in all of that, we, you know, we quickly got back on track and we realized, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're doing this podcast about not overlooking problematic behaviors and people. So we, we got back on, uh, on the right side of this. Well, we got our wits about us uh, soon enough. But the fact that we were so aware of this phenomenon and yet were so quickly able to fall into it again was something that we, we wanted to talk about with you and to process a little bit more. All of this gets tied together through a listener question, and the listener is asking about how she should respond, perhaps, to somebody who was using and really manipulating her own situation to make that other person feel more powerful and important to others. And so it was a case that isn't life-threatening, isn't really dangerous, but something that she wants to maybe address. And so that's one of those cases that, that might make, uh, make you wonder, should you act or should you just stay quiet? And at the end of the second half of this podcast episode, we will come back together, Stacy and I, to discuss whether or not I should go on to Twitter and confront Bikram Chowdhury about some things that he argued on his own Twitter account or whether I should just leave well enough alone. A few caveats are in order. First, a trigger warning. We are going to discuss a case 
and a narrative in which a, a young woman who's a disciple of a guru is sexually mistreated by that guru. It's not, um, it's not going to be something we spend a lot of time on, but you need to know that that's there. We are going to read that account. Also, remember, we're not offering here legal advice. We're not offering psychological advice. We're not offering HR advice. Rather, we're offering ethical advice. How ought we to proceed so that we are doing the best we can for ourselves and other vulnerable people in our lives? Also, we are more than willing to change our minds here. So if you have a better approach, any good tactics that you want to share with us, hey, don't uh, don't need to get mad at us. Please set us straight. Maybe we'll have you on the show or we might read your resources or your, your email on the show. And we, we really do welcome those sorts of things, especially if they can help us to be helpful. Also, remember, our goal is never going to be to scare people off from speaking up and speaking out. It's more about having the confidence to speak and the idea that when we speak, it's good for us to feel like we've thought through all the implications and our own motivations. If you're in a situation that is dangerous or if you're feeling that you're in a situation where someone is doing something illegal, don't ask these questions. Just go right to the authorities and take action. Be empowered to do this. Oh, one last thing. We leave in some bad words that we are quoting from things, and we figured it would be natural to do it that way for this. On the episodes we're going to do this season, when we're dealing with Protect Your Noggin with Jesus, we will bleep out bad words just because people might be using those episodes with high schoolers and and maybe they don't want to have that in church all right thanks for being with us two parts let's go all ahead one third all ahead one third aye aye stand by to dive diving stations dive dive Protect Your Noggin Podcast, a guided adventure from fear to love. Host Jeff and Stacey Mallinson explore ways to outfox religious, relational, and financial manipulation. So take a deep breath, because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry, we'll also have some fun along the way. We got this. Wow, baby, there was a lot going on in the news this week. Yes, there sure has been. I've definitely was a little worried that we were gearing up for for war. Yep we uh, we saw the killing of a an Iranian general at the you know directive of President Trump and people discussing whether or not he had the legitimate power and authority to 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 put us at the brink of war. Mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm. and then we have. Megan and Harry, they're quitting the royal family. I guess they decided to become independent, independent financially, correct? And spending you know, time relatively in speaking, North America. Yeah, I think they, they turned off the spigot on a couple things, but maybe think they're going to get other revenues as well. Who knows? Who knows? But that's an interesting one. They might be relocating to Canada, I heard. There's a possibility. You know, in both of these cases, we see the question of whether one person's actions are going to affect the the national policies and stature and behavior towards other nations with respect to to the 
to the killing mm-hmm. of the, the Iranian general, even people who knew and would say, Democrats, Republicans, this is somebody who was a problem mm-hmm. and we don't really mourn his loss. The question is, did, did this come about, did this uh, killing come about through lawful means? Right. And that takes us to and- something we're going to talk about later, which is just war theory and whether or not in declaring war directly or indirectly, somebody has the right to, to trigger that kind of very serious event. Right. And in the case of Meghan and Harry, it's really interesting. They're just people, right? Most of us, we make up our minds to go to this or that job or be a part of this or that family event. Yeah, they're born into a system that they really ha- they had no choice or, well, Harry didn't anyway, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody had it. I mean, look, if you're marrying into the family, you know you got some baggage, <laughs> like hundreds and hundreds of years of baggage. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, obviously the, the crown as a series, I mean, that kind of sheds some real light into, kind of, you know, what, what it's like to be a part of the, the royal family and all of the sacrifices that have had to be made throughout the years, like uh, with Princess Margaret, she couldn't marry the love of her life, you know, it, it, way back when and that kind of affected her whole life going forward and then you got uh prince edward the eighth who act uh, prince right is it prince well yeah he became king for a little while <laughs> well and then he chose not to and, and he abdicated he abdicated and then that meant that and a whole nother line of the family were now the ones that are heir to the throne but if you watch the show you see how the fact that he abdicated was a real problem yes it they- wasn't so much his alleged sympathies for the nazis it wasn't just that he was marrying somebody he wasn't supposed to it was that he was kind of thumbing his nose at the system well and he shirked his duty is what you know and they they, they think of it think of it as something like a god-given duty that they've been given that he chose to walk away from and that wasn't his right they didn't think this was very important in the middle ages everybody knew that on occasion and maybe on many occasions, parish priests might take a spouse. No, not a spouse, but a concubine, right? They would have Mm -hmm. a lover, and that was naughty, and so you shouldn't do that. But it was much worse when Protestants, after the Reformation, started to take wives, because when they took a wife, they were actually rejecting the authority of the church and the long-standing tradition of not getting married. So there was much more uh, importance placed on that that symbolic act and therefore it's one thing for harry to be a loose cannon Mm -hmm. it's another thing for him to say i'm opting out of this because it it challenges the very foundations of that whole structure and i'm i'm not surprised that this is happening now you know that young young kids they're younger than us right Mm -hmm. when they're watching the crown themselves and they realize that they're part of this yeah this popular culture conversation they want to ask, what part of this history do they want to play? Where are they going to position themselves in this history that has constantly members of the royal family trying to get out of the royal family like it's mm-hmm. a cult, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's its own mm-hmm. thing. And it really is because just as in Japan, you have Shinto so tied up with nationalism and Japan and emperor worship in a certain kind of sense, mm-hmm. that's kind of what the Church of England is up to. In the sense that all of these rituals, we talked about this last week, all of these rituals do also support the hierarchy itself and give it a certain majesty. These rituals give the the whole thing, church, state, society, some kind of divine sanction. Mm-hmm. And so by pulling out of that, you've got trouble. It's, it's kind of like 
there's a song by Father John Misty, They Pay You to Believe, mm. right? So in a weird sense, an artist needs to pretend as if they really believe that everything they're singing or saying or writing is extremely profound. Right. Because if you don't pretend that, <laughs> then the illusion is lost. Right. Well, and you think about, too, even... America's sort of relationship with the monarchy in general. And, and we've always kind of like looked at it. And when girls were younger, um, at the age of, of uh, Prince William, they'd be like, oh, you know, who is he going to marry? You right. know, that kind of thing. And, and there's this, you know, sometimes the public has, and they, especially with Princess Diana too, mm-hmm. um, they really just kind of had this love for the monarchy and that whole thing and wished somehow, and then, you know, all the stories too of like, all of a sudden, somebody decides that they ever finds out that they're a princess or yes. that they're going to marry the a fairy prince. Tales. You know, all these fairy tales. And Americans, we don't have kings. No. And queens and princesses and princes. But we love stories about those things. And it's the original, you know, reality show. Yeah. And so when Harry says, I don't want to be a prince. I'm a prince, but I don't want to be. That's, that's a serious message. And it could be considered an act of war. Yeah. Even if he didn't mean it as that. It's an action. He was, he was claiming his own freedom. Yeah. But an act of war against the monarchy. Harry against- and Meghan declared they should have done it on July Fourth <laughs> and moved to uh, Seattle. Well, that would that would <laughs> that'd be a little too I, much. They want right? Canada, not America. Yeah, that's probably best at this time <laughs> I think in so. human history. Plus, they still have the Queen on the money. You know, oh, yeah. You know, so it's still part of the Commonwealth. Makes sense. It's Makes not the sense. worst place to be. <laughs> I'm wondering what they're thinking. You know, Canada's a nice. If you're playing the game of risk. <laughs> well, Charlie, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, Daddy Chuck, Charles is going to hang, hang out over there in London, but we'll <laughs> we'll maybe hit the uh, the wild colonials over here and and do our thing. Interesting, very interesting to be in Canada if they do show up and become kind of another kind of force, you know. But even if they become no kind of force, sometimes people don't let you leave. Apostates, people who leave a tradition, are often the targets of violence and other kind of emotional threats, whether it's Scientology or, you know, your family, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, by not doing something. Sometimes that's one of the most problematic acts a person can make. Right. So when we're looking at acting, when to engage, Mm -hmm. sometimes engaging is this act of not engaging. Exactly. (laughs) Right. It's it's a vote against something, even, even if you don't mean to start a war. Dear listeners, sometimes... People want to be validated. Sorry. Some, sometimes you go into a, a Thanksgiving and you cause a little trouble with a conversation you have, right? You go to a family mm-hmm. gathering. And that is preferable to many people in the family than you just ghosting the family. <laughs> <laughs> I know? would think so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but the real thing that I think hit us was the third news story. Yeah. Well, and and so we have... The death of Ram Dass, which yeah. happened, that was before Christmas, right? December 22nd, I believe. Okay. Um, so, but there was something that came out more recently that I saw happen to see in social media. And so what was going on, though, is, you know, there's been lots of talk, obviously, about Ram Dass. Ram Dass is the, the colleague in Harvard of the, uh, the famous Timothy Leary. Both um, both of these guys were part of the LSD research before LSD was illegal, and they were doing this work related to psychology, and they used grad students in their in their work. But somewhere along the line, an undergraduate got some LSD, and they were going to get expelled. And they told their parents, and essentially, they ended up you know firing these guys. 
And the, the thing that's interesting about these two characters, um, Ram Dass and Timothy Leary, is Timothy Leary is kind of a nut job, you know, and and, and many people think that he kind of um, was responsible for the quick end to psychedelic research in psychiatry for PTSD and, and, mm. uh, and anxiety and all sorts of things because it was more than just a therapeutic thing for Timothy Leary. It was this idea that we were going to get these kids to realize they were going to drop out of the system. Mm. They weren't mm. going to go to the... a threat to yeah, society. Very big threat to the society. And so, you know, most, uh, you know, most uh, pharmaceutical research is done in such a way that, you know, you've got all of these, these protocols before it becomes a public thing. Well, now if, if young people are doing LSD and not listening to mommy and daddy and they're not going to the war and they're not doing the jobs they were supposed to do, yeah, it's kind of like Harry and Meghan leave town. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But the thing was, so, so with Ram Dass, I, was, I think this is why this came up this week, is I was saying to Augie how much Ram Dass was better than Timothy Leary because he didn't rely on drugs to find his philosophical principles. That was something that kind of got him started. You know, this research got him thinking about non-Western ways of thinking. And he got into, you know, he went to India and got into Eastern philosophy. And even though I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't share his same religious views uh, or, you know, the, the late Ram Dass's religious views, I always thought he was, he's a sincere him, guy. You labeled him amongst the good guys. Type yeah. Of, you know, that right. Was, and that, and that you're like, okay, here's here's a figure in society He's got some that had some wisdom and a positive influence overall. Um, and amongst the hippies, there were a lot of people that went nutty. And I was kind of kind of saying to Augie that there were at least a few people that channeled this towards a, a saner kind of reappraisal of, of Western thought. For instance, Alan Watts, right? Uh, Alan Watts famously said, great, you know, uh, you, you learn something with psychedelics, but when, you know, you, you get the message, then you hang up the phone. You don't just rely on this, this sort of thing. And so um, these were people that were not overly hostile to innovative research, but they weren't, they weren't trying to create or even just kind of wallow in, in what might be called a drug culture of the 60s. Right. And yet... Then you came up and ruined well, then, the whole thing. Well, then I was like, I just saw, I saw an article that basically kind of said maybe the the story that we have of Ram Dass in our in our minds isn't the full story that there was yeah. around him and, and and people kind of influencing him that have done did some inappropriate behavior and basically that maybe this guy that we put up on this pedestal like shouldn't be you know there right that's right <laughs> it's a, maybe too high of a, a position given the, what you were what you were saying to augie so now, part, part of the reason what did what did that what did that do for you and when, when i mentioned this and you're like i showed you the article right? yeah it made me very uncomfortable because one of the things i liked about him was this idea that he was one of the few people that he wasn't worried about his ego or his reputation the way it seemed that timothy leary was at the end of his life or other people, you know, other historical figures. And he was, there was a, there was a documentary we were, we were watching. And he was being lowered into a, a pool. Mm -hmm. And he was unable to move. And he had this big old smile on his face. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, sometimes it's so wonderful to be able to just receive the blessing of... of other people doing things for you. Other people helping you. Yeah, and that he wasn't dying badly. And I'm always interested, you and I are both always interested... 
our our antennas are tuned to people who have interesting ideas about how to die well, how to deal with the problem of death or an aging, an aging, right? And that's something he's always been, you know, from the beginning, kind of interested in as well. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even though Timothy Leary and Ram Dass had had some, they'd been friends, but they also had their disagreements. Towards the end of his life, when when Timothy Leary was dying, he contacted Ram Dass to help him kind of help him get through this process. Mm-hmm. And so, so here's somebody who is content, like Saint Paul. I've learned to be content, or like Seneca. You know, the the Stoic finding this kind of presence here, living in the now, not worrying about the past, not worrying about the future. Just like Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. So here's somebody who really, to me, got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, not in every way. And I always knew that I was uncomfortable about the part of his story where he was going off to India and a little bit too interested in a guru. But I didn't know much about it. Other than to say, I don't really trust anybody's, you know, thorough devotion to a guru. I always thought that was a weird part of the 60s and 70s. People have this awareness, mm-hmm. this the waking up, as it were, and then all of a sudden they think, now that means I'm going to, I'm going to exchange my upbringing and the authorities of my upbringing for a, a wacky new authority, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and that made me not trust him so much, but I kind of set that aside. And when you said something... I, I wanted well, to say sad, no. Because you got, I got, I you got, got very sad. really sad, and I said, "Well, I said, you know, this is just one article I saw, right? right? And and basically, kind of then slightly, you know, just saying maybe there's not, you know, a whole lot of truth to this. Maybe he could still be on his pedestals, kind of, you know, like maybe we don't have to take him off so quickly. And right. that scared both of us, right? Um, and and you noticed it first because you're like, right. wait a minute, here, wait, this whole thing we we do this, we're doing this podcast. We've talked about. All sorts of ways that uh, pe- we we don't confront when people are being misguided, right? And then all of a sudden, here I am, and you know, kind of maybe pulling back and justifying, you know, like that maybe it's okay or something. And we're like, here, it's so easy to slip into that mode, especially when we don't want to believe in the truth of something, right? And I, you know, again, you can go look at the facts yourself and just make your <laughs> decision yeah. about Ram Das. What I'm trying to say here is the uh, the point, though, that even that was my – I was going to ease the burden of Jeff's sadness yeah. by trying to say – Maybe maybe these allegations are in a, in a, inappropriate or wrong. Right, which is not – you know, we, it, should, it should have been – we should look into this a little right. further and figure out, you know, what his true legacy might be because if there is a problem with it, we should be aware of that, right? Now, we'll explore what these, these issues are in a moment, but just – to, to lay this out, again, we're dealing with the question of who has the right to take a nation to war. We're dealing with who has the right to leave their position in society, in this case, the, the royal prince and his wife. And then Ram Dass, what do we do when our heroes maybe didn't perform as, as we would like them to have performed? Right. And all of these things, in that third case, the thing that hurt me was that that one of the things that both of us have found so helpful is that idea of living in the now. Again, it's biblical. Mm-hmm. It's Lao Tzu. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly that, that hippie concept. When we were at the farm, we saw a bus that said, you're here now, yeah, <laughs> you know, or something yeah, like this. Yeah. And, and that is very, very helpful because it doesn't require a certain doctrinal position. It just says, 
let's calm ourselves down here and let's just focus on what's right in front of us. Right. And, and, and then basically, the rest of it can flow. And what, it, and what it's saying is far too often. So whether, you know, whether you like all this, you might've heard a lot of this talk about be here now or whatever, perhaps you have, perhaps you haven't. Live in the now, uh, be present. In, uh, yes. And all of what that really is getting at is this good piece of advice that too often we kind of, we, we destroy the present by being so worried about something that happened in the past. Right. Or resentments. Or we're looking forward to what we hope to happen in the future. Or what we're worried about hopefully not happening. Yes, that's true too. Yeah. So our our yes. So it's our fears, it's our you know, our fears and our desires and things that we want to have versus and also then again our regrets. Regrets. And so we live in the future and in the past far too often and aren't just enjoying the moment right in front of you that you have with your husband or your children or the flowers or the, you know, whatever it is that you're right, that you're not present enough. A lot of times people talk about in conversations and stuff that they aren't sometimes even present in the conversation. And I've been there too. And my head is somewhere else and I go through the motions of We're usually not in the present. No, no. I mean, I think human beings, we're usually not in the present. No, yeah. We're in our heads thinking, you know, thinking, and we're not actually listening or paying attention to what is right in front of us. And that's death. So we're all worried about eternal life. And yet, as, as uh, Seneca said, some men don't start to live until it's almost too late. At the end of their lives, they finally figure out what it is to be present. And then they're not present. <laughs> yeah. What if they would have learned early on, Seneca asks, you know. Well, and especially even if when you do face your own death, when you know that now you have... An expiration date on you, say a doctor, a diagnosis or something, mm-hmm. it really causes you to reflect on on now. On the now, and the gifts that are now. So, look, Julian of Norwich didn't invent everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Neither did T.S. Eliot. Neither did Bob Marley. You know, people have recognized that there's this fabric to the universe that is kind of weaving together something beautiful. And so it wasn't this one person. And... Ram Dass did not, uh, you know, invent being here now. Neither did Eckhart Tolle more recently. It's ancient wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's everything from the Epic of Gilgamesh to Ecclesiastes, you know, mm-hmm. in the ancient world. It is, this, like I said, the Stoics and Paul and Jesus. It's, it's, it's a very important teaching. And yet, because there was such a connection between this this guy, Ram Dass, and my own family, mm-hmm. and things about my childhood that were positive things that we'll get to in a moment. The idea was, if there was something negative that was in the news about Ram Dass, I would be losing that, those things that I treasured. Mm-hmm. And then you wanted to help me, mm-hmm. and you said, don't worry, maybe these are all made up because they would have said something earlier. Mm-hmm. And then we stopped ourselves and said, oh my goodness, we're doing it. Right. We're doing the very thing that we say that churches shouldn't do when somebody accuses somebody in leadership of being naughty. Mm-hmm. Now, Ram Dass is still not not the worst character. He's, I, I, I really... You, you, know, you did some research. Did some research. We'll look into that in a second. But, but it, well, and, and maybe we're wrong. And maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised that, that you know, ultimately... The big picture is he's he's a, a super guy, but the phenomenon is real, mm-hmm. and so we're thinking about this all the time. We're reading about it, we're researching about it, we're 
we're writing about it, we're podcasting about it, and yet in day-to-day life, we saw in our own family that we were not willing to fully look at evidence, or at least for a moment, we were worried about looking at the full evidence Mm -hmm. because of our investment in the teaching. Right. As if this person and anything good they had to say was tied to, you know, their biography. And in, in a way, it kind of is tied to your biography. Mm-hmm. That is, mm-hmm. you know, your your story is going to is going to be part of the question of whether or not this tree is bearing good fruit. Mm-hmm. And if there's something that was good fruit for us and then it turns out that the tree was rotten, oh no, what do we do? You know, know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know? So, what we're what we're looking at here is when when and how do we engage with folks when we and when is it appropriate or not appropriate and certain things you know we'll 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 just get into this more detail later but this connects with a question that we had that came in that came in from Alice and she she wrote it in so I'll read it. it says what would be a good way to respond to someone who seems to be praying for you publicly but you can tell is using you or manipulating your situation for attention to make themselves feel more powerful or to influence others. So what she's wondering here is, again, what's a good way to respond? Like she wants to know how should she engage or right. should she engage with this, you know, in, with this person who she's uncomfortable with something that's happening in her right. life. So Alice has medical issues and she does care that I'm sure that people pray, are, for, her pray and, for her and are sympathetic. But then there are other people, and, and many of you will know this, there are people that kind of feed off of your crisis as a way for them to have something to talk about. Gives them a certain level of importance, perhaps. Yes. Or, or maybe, you know, there's something going on in their life where they want more attention, you know? Now, what do you do? Now, this isn't evil. This isn't, you know, somebody sticking an, uh, you know, uh, a needle in your eye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is something that's uncomfortable and probably not healthy, maybe a little codependent. You know, what's going on here? And... You want to ask yourself, when should I say something? When should I act? When should I take, take some kind of action to engage this person or this organization in, in such a way that you're going to try to get them to stop? Mm-hmm. Maybe you let it happen. Maybe you don't let it happen. That's what's really behind our question for today. When do you act? What are the rules of engagement? We're going to dive a little deeper into this in, in general, but what is your initial take here on this situation? Well, the main thing is... Alice and everyone, you take care of you. There is something that you can, uh, you know, maybe uh, attenuate. You know, you can you can pull back. You can be stronger or weaker in terms of your response to to how you actually deal with the situation. But you you have to be able to be in control of your own life. Right. And this is something that I write about in in my chapter on friendship. If you go to the show notes on protectyournoggin.org, I'll I'll link to it. But basically. We love everybody, but we don't owe all of our time to everybody. Sometimes we have right. you know, emotional vampires. Sometimes we have people that are kind of using our pain for their gain. Right. You know, and it's I mean, not a healthy – it's no longer a healthy relationship to be engaged in. That's possible. The other thing I would mention here, and, and I kind of hinted, I would definitely say that this is unhealthy. Like you said, it could be healthy or, or not or whatever, but it definitely – it's not a healthy action from a person, right. right? So there's something going on in their lives, and I think we need to make sure we have compassion on why is this happening in the first place? You know, what is what is going on with Mrs. Munchausen that she wants to take this situation somehow and, and make it or turn it into something for herself? Right. So there's something, either a lack of power in her own life 
or, you know, boredom or something that is going on that she, you know, so looking a little further, maybe if you are, if you still want to maintain that relationship, she could feel lonely, not important. And maybe ask how she's doing, you know, because there's maybe something there where she's suffering and doesn't quite know like her, how, whatever she's suffering from may not seem like anything compared to Alice's situation, say. Right. So she wants that energy she feels from folks though for you know that on behalf of you know for alice but she wants right. it for herself somehow that could very well be right Who knows, you know? right right so if alice is dealing with a medical situation and and she sees people caring maybe she needs to be cared for mm. that said that goes back to what my, my initial response is yeah that's true that happens all the time so you can both have compassion on people who want that and also set your own boundaries Correct. such that you're you're not letting people you're not making you know, excuses for them. I'm not saying yeah. and I'm not saying you have to put up with it just because this person could be suffering. I'm just saying there's there's probably a story behind this. This is discernment with compassion. We mm-hmm. can have compassion on people who are doing something that annoys us or is even unhealthy for us, but yet not put up with it. We can have compassion and understanding without endorsing and supporting and continuing with relationships that feed into it, mm-hmm. right? Very important. Now, for me, uh, you know, if we're looking at this question when to engage, for me, you know, I I had this this tweet ready to go, mm-hmm. and we had watched the, the documentary of yeah, Bikram, <laughs> the Netflix documentary on Bikram, the guy who you know uh, Bikram Chowdhury, Chowdhury, the guy who started this kind of Hollywood spectacle of a of a, of a movement of yoga. And a lot of famous people, you know, would go up to his operation. And he was a, well, he is, he's still alive, not so good of a guy, mm-hmm. and very clearly. Absolutely, absolutely. And I and I remember, again, saying, wait a minute, pause here before you push the send, which I often kind of do sometimes when you're when you're about to engage. And, and I must say, actually, to a fault. Yes. That, well, I don't know if to a fault. I'm <clears> saying <throat> this happens a lot. <laughs> no, I... I I am saying, though, I need to be a little bit more bold and comfortable with sometimes confrontation when it's necessary or engaging when I need to. I think that my personality and I believe um, that there's that part of me that doesn't want is has a hard time confronting one to one with somebody if there's a problem, right? Uh, you're not really so, a big fan of confronting organizations and political parties either. You know, it's like you, confrontation is not something you want to jump right into. Right, right, exactly. So I tend to, you know, sometimes in, in, in healthy ways or whatever, I could act passive aggressively towards something. Um, but avoiding conflict is often what I, what I want to do. And I know that that is to a fault. My problem is I'm ready to rumble. Let's go, you know. Yeah, you're like, like let's. let's not that I'm not. I'm, I'm not really interested in fights. I'm a lover, not a fighter. But I'm uh, reckless at times. You know, like my my first thought will be the th- the thing that I do. Well, <laughs> and you also you you think extrovertedly. Yes. So I think I try a few things out and then apologize later. <laughs> right. So you're kind of sh- you know you're sharing. You're sharing what's right in your mind at the time and, right. and, and the way you do it. You know, it, it, social media can be scary because it's a little too quick of an access sometimes yeah. to be able to spout something off and that you hadn't really necessarily thought right. through, which we'll right. talk so about. So it's, it's good for us to, you know, you know play Maybe off each other on this forth. one, but so, this is what the show's about. So I held him back for the moment of, you know, with the, this 
what you were going to send, like the, the tweet? I should probably explain it. Can I explain it? Sure. Well, Bikram, you know, not so nice of a guy. The video or the, the documentary, I think, does a good job of explaining this. But he's still operating. Yeah, he's, he's in Mexico. He's still doing yoga teacher training in Mexico. And there's a bunch of sycophants saying what a great guy he is and that he's not, you know, been properly you know, treated by the media and that these are all lies. And his argument in, in, on Twitter, I'm like, this guy's still alive. And not only is he alive, he's on Twitter. And you can go watch him in real time doing his thing. Mm-hmm. It's a weird time to be alive, you know. Right. But, and here he is. And he says, of course I didn't do anything wrong. Yoga has helped so many people's lives. So many people have have been powerfully transformed through my teaching. So obviously, I didn't do anything wrong. And that, that's what's, what's so scary because yes. just because something, like we said, if the fruit is bad, I mean, it, you know, it, the fruit might be good in some people's life, but that doesn't mean the source that it came from yeah. isn't dead. If people if people are sad and don't know what to do about you know, their lawsuits because he's out of the country. I mean, this is not a pleasant situation, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I I think make no mistake about it, you know, this guy's a bad, bad actor. Well, and bad, bad people can still use good for their own gain. Yeah, that's the whole point. The better the magic is, you know, the more powerful the magic mm -hmm, is, the more likely it is that somebody's going to want to exploit that. So uh, anyway, the main, the main thing is, should I mess with Bikram Chowdhury and his claim that because he because he was effective, he didn't do naughty things? Should I engage him on Twitter or should I just let it be? That's the question we're going to answer at the end of the show. And uh, this also then led to something that you ran into online as well. Correct. Yeah. So there was one of my favorite musicians these days, Mike Love, uh, not from the the Beach Boys. Yes, he's not the Beach Boy, Mike Love. You got to be careful, <laughs> right? He he does reggae music, Mike Love, and the Mike I, Love that you're talking about, who was in Dub Conscious with a K, Dub Conscious with a K. Mm-hmm. He's a Hawaiian musician and just amazing, just a wonderful guy. Well, and, and I never really actually got his music when I heard it until I saw him live. Yeah, you got to see him. Live. And when I when I saw him live, I was like, oh, okay, this guy is great. Like I and then I love the music, but. So Mike, and he does little sermons, by the way. My yes. kids always like that. Was like a church, man. That was yeah, exactly. He, he, he wouldn't call them sermons, no. but he just you know talks about you know everybody. Hey, love each other, and he, he's he's a very he's a wise young man. Yes. So somebody responded to something that he said on in social media, and basically said, "I joined Twitter just to smack talk Trump. I don't know if I'm feeling it being peaceful or taking back the power right now." LOL. That's the question. And he responds back to her. I'm pretty sure every last person that's decided that Trump is not a total ass has probably got a pretty damn good system of lying to themselves built up by now. So you're probably just wasting your time. Peace is definitely always a better approach. I know the political world is a mess right now. The little sad face. And that's all the more reason to stop giving them your power and put your energy into your community. Lead by example with positivity and light. Exemplify the changes you want to see. That's the way to inspire. It's easy to get caught up talking shit, but it's a bad habit. And when you feed it, it starts spreading into every part of your life. I know it's something I've had to deal with recently. And when you stop doing it, it's a very renewing and rejuvenating feeling. Fill your lungs with positive words, your heart with good intentions, and your mind with hope. It's the only way we're going to find a way through all this chaos. And that made me happy when you read that. 
but then also made me mad. I'm saying, hey, now we gotta <laughs> like, we gotta fight. Yeah, like, <laughs> fight just, sometimes. You can't just let you know. So there's there's a fine line though, mm-hmm. and I and I do appreciate the sentiment of. I think generally he's right. Yeah, you don't you don't want to go around starting battles first of all. But mm-hmm. we'll talk more about some of that, <laughs> you know, when we go through the mm-hmm. just war theory. But what I did appreciate is don't focus on the negative. Focus on what you want to see positive, right? And work towards that. So you build your community. You you know you start sort of. You know, don't put your all these like thoughts. Sometimes, like the kids and I laugh because you watch CNN a lot. You know, I'm I'm slowing it down. <laughs> you, you used to, especially when you had more of the time. Like the, your morning routine was to get your first dose of what is going on in the news, right? Well, no, I want to say here, I I never have time. But when I'm doing my busy work, I like to have something on in the background, and I don't like to have to figure out what to put on Netflix. So one of the reasons I like CNN or, or some other news channel is that it's going to be able to be on for six hours and I don't have to program it or set up a playlist. And what I often don't appreciate from it is I'm just hearing all of this negativity all the time and it, and it just feels like it's infiltrating my brain. And, and yes. I want to be able to, you know, be kept up on what is going on, but in smaller doses and not mm-hmm. and not accidentally have that be what is constantly the energy that's constantly being fed to me. Oh, yeah, because everyone's outraged for Mike Love's point. If you just get on Twitter and just say things, you're not changing anybody's minds. Right. You're just creating more noise sometimes. At this point, yeah. Sometimes, depending on who you are, mm-hmm. is the key. Because there are other people who, when they make their points, are doing something that's actually rather important. Part of it is is that, in a, in a weird sense, we've lost, we've lost the search for truth. And more fighting for what you know what our side is a lot of times, yeah. and and it's important in our lives that we don't deny what the truth is, or that we that we seek out the truth. Yeah, that's like that's an antidote to gaslighting. Every once in a while, you just want to check in with them. I mean, that's that's it for me. Sometimes I like to check in with people that are like minded, not to just reinforce myself, but but to say, all right, am I. Am I going crazy here, mm-hmm. or is it something wacky? Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a that's a that's a helpful thing. So like, tell tell us just a little bit more about Ram Dass and why he's why he was an important figure to you. You you you, you briefly touched on some of this, um, but personally, I think there yeah, was a little bit. more. There's a personal element to it, and it's funny because I haven't you know I don't read his books, mm-hmm. I don't watch his lectures on YouTube. I, I didn't really follow him, but no. he's more like an archetype or an image of somebody that was comforting to me growing Mm. up partly because when I was young when it was just me and my folks or me and my folks and you know my younger brother Scotty there was there was this time you know when we were living in Colorado and we were close to nature we're close to the mountains and everybody was kind of on this hippie vibe I associate that with a positive time in my life Mm -hmm. when you know, and we, your dog, you had a, and we had a dog named Bindu. Dog. Now, Richard Alpert was the name that Ram Dass was born with, and Richard, Doctor Richard Alpert, was there at Harvard. And when he then went to India, he was you know connected up with this this guru, and uh, but more importantly, before I get to that, he was also connected up with a way of kind of making sense of his LSD experience in terms of religion, right? Mm-hmm. So I access this, not having done LSD, I'm reading stuff in high school about, you know, Mercia Eliada or, 
uh, you know, Alan Watts or whatever. They're just this kind of interesting people. In the, I'm just interested in religion and philosophy, right? So, well, and your parents dipped into that whole scene. Like and my parents saying. did. So for me, you know, it was like, you know, until I got hooked up with evangelicalism, for me when I was young, I just kind of assumed that a certain kind of uh, reincarnation was, was where it was at and loving people was more important than rules. And, I mean, these were just... A lot of the hippie values were part of my young life, but they were the things that kind of gave me a certain kind of ethos, stability, narrative, mythology, or whatever. And, you know, once we moved to California and the evangelical Bible Belt, I had a bad experience with Christianity. So for me, Richard Alpert Ram Dass was a representative of one of the better sages mm-hmm. from my background right yeah. like so it's well, like and it, and, and it was a time like you said in your life where before all the chaos happened before yeah. it was a peaceful I mean, I ended time. up having seven brothers and sisters right and, and and those times of being able to hang out with my parents and watching you know uh a, you know a samurai movie and then talking about zen buddhism or something afterwards right. those were gone right. so just and, at a and nostalgic now, level and now you're in a school where you end up might be getting the board of education and those you know the the beatings that you have to run away right, from right in sixth grade right? so there's right. all this stuff that happens so the hippies to me were the good guys mm-hmm. and the christians in sixth grade were the people that brought pain and i looked back to my earliest memories my earliest memories were the dear dear love that i had for my dog bindu bindu was this mutt that we had in 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 the mountains but the the name bindu of our first dog was from Richard Alpert, who had become Ram Dass, mm-hmm. uh, his, this box, this amazing thing that, that you could get that had a record and a couple books in it and pamphlets and things, and it was from Bindu to Ojas. I, I think it's actually Ojas, but since we live in Southern California, every J becomes a <laughs> sound, right? So from, from Bindu to Ojas. And this is a, you know, this is kind of like a formative, foundational piece of kind of hippie text, Right, and it and and it had in it the idea of the be here now yeah. concept. So that influenced, you know, if you go back to an episode we did on the farm, those guys are influenced by this. If there was an ethos, if there was a teaching, this influenced that. And it was also at an aesthetic level. I was just showing it to Augie how cool it was, where they would have these cardboard that they put together with twine, mm-hmm. and so they bound this book by hand with twine, and they had you know records and. Well, in fact, you know what I'm. I asked my dad to call in and, and just kind of give us a little bit about this book from Bindu to Ojas. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's what he said. I might be able to shed a little uh, light on the uh, book, Be Here Now, as it appeared in uh, the early 1970s. I'm a baby boomer. I graduated from high school in New Jersey in 1967, and I was a college student in the late 60s and early 70s, so... I had a chance to um, witness a lot of the things that were going on. And to really understand the impact of Be Here Now, you have to really kind of look at the context with which it uh, came out. Uh, Myself, I was um, enamored of the folk music in the late 60s. I used to go into Greenwich Village from my uh, home in uh, suburban New Jersey on the weekends. And uh, to me, Bob Dylan really kind of started it off. And the reason I mentioned Dylan is that basically he was seminal as far as youth culture and the folk scene and then, of course, the anti-war 
seeing was happening at that time. Then I would have to say the context of the times was really Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, Club Band by the Beatles. That was really something that changed everything. That and Woodstock, of course, that happened in August of 69. And within that context of Woodstock and uh, the Beatles, on the Beatles cover of uh, Sgt. Pepper's was uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, amongst others. Yogananda had the book um, Autobiography of the Yogi, and that made the scene at that time. And that was the first look of Eastern mysticism. And then, of course, the Beatles went to Mallorca, Spain, to be with the Maharishi Yogi, uh, who started Transcendental Meditation. My wife and I went into Greenwich Village, and we were some of the first people that uh, became initiated into TM. And it's interesting, when TM got started, um, they really couldn't sell it because we we were asked to bring in fruit, uh, you know, to bring in uh, uh, some fruit to give to the guru and be initiated. And then nobody really thought much of it until they started charging money. And then it became more successful. So... And then, of course, uh, the Maharishi um, uh, had a thing for Mia Farrow, and I guess um, uh, the Beatles were very disappointed in him, and uh, Lennon wrote a song, uh, Sexy Sadie, What Have You Done? You Made a Fool of Everyone. Basically, their disappointment in um, Maharishi of TM. And in this context, uh, I remember I was in Greenwich Village in the late 60s, and of all things in the gutter... There were um, headshot photographs of uh, a man who was uh, speaking in Greenwich Village, and it was Dr. Richard Alpert. And it, he looked like Buddy Holly. He was clean cut with a suit, and he had those black glasses that Buddy Holly used to wear. And um, I guess some people were handing out uh, uh, poster-type things for his speech where he was giving in Greenwich Village. And I always remember that it was, it was right there in the gutter, a bunch of these the photographs of Alfred. And then later on, um, as the years went by, uh, I, I remembered who he was from that incident. But when Be Here Now came out, it was post-Woodstock, it was post-Maharishi and Transcendental Meditation, and it really hit the scene big time. And uh, I remember the, the original was put out, printed on uh, a grocery store brown bags and uh Bound with rope or uh, twine, and I got an original copy. And um, that and the whole Earth catalog were really the Bibles of uh, the times in the 60s, and it was very um, inspirational, and it kind of set the tone for a lot of uh, what happened in those days. So just thought I'd give you a little background on the context of what life was like when the book came out. Tremendous impact, because... If nothing else, because a lot of people didn't get into that particular guru, the alphabet, uh, Ramdas had, uh, but everybody went a thousand different ways, from Rinpoche, the Tibetan monk, to uh, uh, self-realization fellowship, even Scientology and uh, uh, a number of different things, um, all kind of springboarded. People were thirsty for spirituality instead of religion. So anyway, here's so here this is. This is this artifact from mm-hmm. my childhood mm-hmm. that's important to my family and so forth. And um, Wait, and you mentioned it got stolen. So yeah. where when where was it was in the back of it was in the back of their 
their their vehicle and was somebody that, just jacked stuff out of their vehicle. Was this in Colorado or in California? In Colorado. Okay. Yeah. But I mean they they had all their stuff in a vehicle. Well, <laughs> yeah, so that, and it looked so cool. So well, I mean, I'm I not sure know. they were looking for that in particular today. Yeah. Again, it's it's going to be worth a lot of money. If, dear listener, you want to uh, not donate money, but you want to just send Jeff and Stacy your copy that you're not using of the, the box set of From Bindu to Ohas, feel <laughs> free to do so for our uh, archival <laughs> We gladly purposes. take it. But I mean, anyway, so, and then, and then our current dog, Bindi, is kind of a throwback to that idea. Yeah, so it's Stephen Irwin. He was, the, yes. nickna- he was nicknamed the Crocodile Hunter. And his daughter is named Bindi. Mm. Now, our daughter-in-law said, you know, hey, we could maybe name the dog Bindi. And this means um, butterfly. So there's and we that. we had a little chrysalis on We had a little door. chrysalis. We, we get, helped give monarch butterfly. Monarch, bar- butterfly. So around the time. So and and um, so it had the connection to, to Bindu. And it had this idea that that she was, um, you know, kind of like the first and last dog, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, that I had, right? So that, that was part of it. And so it was like kind of tying me back. So this from Bindu to Ohas, it's it's almost like the Bible for some families. It's like you have the family Bible on the coffee table mm-hmm. and maybe you don't read it. Right, 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 right. So for me, from Bindu to Ohas was just an artifact of a time when we were close as a family and it was a time when there was a, a, a spiritual teaching that seemed to be helpful for both my parents and for me yeah. in a way that, um, that, like I said, late, yeah, like you said, late, later in the ni- 1986, evangelical fundamentalism was not. Right. If this guy that wrote this, put this together, Ram Dass, wasn't totally cool, if he wasn't a saint, then that, then that means that the whole thing is a mess. You know, and that's emotionally difficult. So again, we have all the compassion in the world for somebody who doesn't want to tolerate any accusations against their favorite pastor mm-hmm. or priest or whatever, because or guru or Zen master or whatever, because there's so much that you've invested yeah. in that and and, and, and what was, it symbolizes. And there, was, and there were there were good things that came from it, which is exactly exactly part of it. We don't want to let go of that, right? Right. Now, so what are what are the problems? Really, there's only as far as I could tell when I was looking into things, there's only one thing that was a red flag, and that is that at some point Timothy Leary was worried that that Ram Dass was um, kind of hitting on his son. Now, later on, we find out that Ram Dass um, said that he was bisexual. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is a tricky business because, you know, sometimes we've noticed that because of people's, like, you know, being uncomfortable with other people that are not straight, mm-hmm. because they're worried, are you hitting on me? Is that a threat to me? Are right. you coming on to me? Are you coming on to my kids? Now, I'm not saying that is an excuse. I'm just saying I leave that open as a potential, you know, avenue to pursue. Like, is that a, is that a possibility? But any sign that you were coming on to somebody who was underage is, is, not, okay. is not okay. So, So that's not to say that it happened. It is to say that I shouldn't dismiss that. I don't like that. But beyond that, what is the real issue? for Ram Dass. The real issue is this this weird kind of cult of the guru in general that really, I think, mm. just, just like good psychiatric research was shut down because people were reckless, good application of yoga was shut down for many people because of reckless yogis. Yes. Right? Um, yoga became, in the 60s and 70s, a problem for many people. 
and it led them into cults and it led them into false teachers and and uh, bad situations and it's not just bikram that's more recent right that goes back in right. you know it's it's you know wild wild country it's the 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 rajneeshis it's it's mm-hmm. it's so common but here it is that you know you have you have uh ramdas who is so dedicated to this guy neem karoli baba or the maharaji now you got to separate this out there was a boy guru that my parents followed to mantros who was also called the maharaji and um, but that was a different guy okay. this was a guy the, the, the neem karoli baba was the maharaji that died in 1973 the year that i was born but this was an important guru for uh, for Ram Das, introduced to him by this guy from Laguna Beach, California, Bhagavan Das, who's still operating. Interestingly, Bhagavan Das, for a period of time, got into uh, born-again Christianity. Mm. But it seems, if I go back onto the internet there, that he's back into doing the more Hindu music. Gotcha. Right? But but what's interesting about Bhagavan, Bhagavan Das is that he was featured in that book or he was featured within those materials of from Bindu to Ohas as this sagely figure. Gotcha. And he reflects, he says, I was just some kid that was a mess trying to find myself. He introduced, uh, uh, you know, Richard Alpert to this, this guru Maharaji. And I think Ram Dass overemphasized or overestimated the, the, the recommendation, mm. right? Like you meet a friend and he's really into this music or he's into this Netflix show. You might really put them on a high pedestal. Right. And they put somebody else on a higher pedestal. Yeah. And then you might be uncritical about this. And so really the problem for Ram Das isn't that he was, he doesn't seem to be an evil guy. He seems to have been so devoted to this guru that he was unable to see ways in which this, this guy was a bad guy. Okay, that's the key. Right. And this is what makes me terrified because not only do you have to ask, what do we do about bad actors? But what do we do when we are people that, that are, are trying to yeah, with we're bad as- actors or yes. we have promoted bad actors, right? Yeah. That, that, that's really hard. Or when we just are tolerating. So by association, if you don't speak up about somebody, mm-hmm. are you endorsing them? And, and, and what I thought about this was that in some ways – you know, Timothy Leary was was obviously a nutter, you know, in some ways. Like, he was totally fun, totally funny, lovable. But, you know, he's telling everybody to, to, to drop out of society. And maybe a little crazy. Maybe had some crazy ideas for sure. Hanging out with the Beatles and such. And so he's, you know, he's him, right? Mm-hmm. And he cared more about how he looked. And here, on the other hand, is Ram Das, who is very serious about his spirituality. He's very, very sincere. But Ram Das's sincerity led to less critical thinking, perhaps. Perhaps. About, about some of his leaders? Right. Now, there's a book about, uh, about all of this. It's, it's a very interesting book, although Jeffrey Falk has some, some ideas that I disagree with. For instance, uh, he seems to support the idea that Jesus never existed, and that's just historically silly. He wrote a book called Stripping the Gurus, Sex, Violence, Abuse, and Enlightenment. And he says, for instance, that you know, he grants that that Ram Das is, quote, one of the good guys at heart through all this. So in a book about all these bad gurus and all these, you know, whack jobs in the 60s and 70s, here's somebody who, you know, 
seems to have a good heart. Right. And he's also interesting to Falk uh, because when, when Ram Dass got involved with Hoya Santana, who became a cult leader, he eventually was able to recognize that he was in a bad situation and he recognized that he was wrong. Mm-hmm. So here's a guy who's got a good heart. He is sincere. He admits when he's wrong. But in his, in his love for the Maharaji, he is uncritical. And he even writes materials where he collects testimony about the Maharaji from people, including women, who have very disturbing accounts. And he doesn't really seem to shake this, – this doesn't seem to shake – his respect for his guru. Right. Would you just would you just read one account from a young woman? Again, this is we said in the cold open that you know trigger warning. Yeah, this, this is definitely. this is not a this is not a wonderful account. No. So it says, the first time he took me in the room alone, I sat up on the tucket, which is a low wooden bed. And by the way, this is a, a female disciple. Yeah. And so she said that she sat up on the tucket with him, and he was like a seventeen-year-old jock who was a little fast. I felt as if I were fifteen and innocent. He started making out with me, and it was so cute, so pure. I was swept into it for a few moments. But then I grew alarmed. Wait, this is my guru. One doesn't do this with one's guru. So I pulled away from him. Then Maharaji tilted his head sideways and wrinkled up his eyebrows in a tender, endearing, quizzical look. He didn't say anything, but his whole being was saying to me, Don't you like me? But as soon as I walked out of the particular darshan, which that's a, like a blessing which is said to flow right from like the, the saint right to you. Right? right. Like this is, I mean, for some weird reason, everybody loved this. They would just want to have the guru look at them in the eye. And that was enough. That that was a powerful moment for a lot of people. Yeah. So she's, she's walking out. Then um, I started getting so sick that by the end of the day, I felt I had vomited and shit out everything that was ever inside me. I had to be carried out of the ashram. On the way, we stopped by Maharaji's room so that I could pranam. And that's where you have this kind of reverential greeting. You know, this is really part of this reinforcement of the whole guru mm. thing. That's it, garbage, by the way. <laughs> it ain't okay. no good. But Okay, so then she's, so she's offering this greeting to him. And then she says, she continues, I kneeled by the tucket and put my head down by his feet. And he kicked me in the head saying, get her out of here. That was the first time, and I was to be there for two years. During my last month there, I was alone with him every day in the room. Sometimes he would just touch me on the breasts and between my legs, saying, This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. All is mine. You are mine. You can interpret it as you want, but near the end of these darshans, it was as though he were my child. Sometimes I felt as though I were suckling a tiny baby. So now here is 1979. Ram Das is writing about this. This woman reflects on the experience she had. She she gives us this information, if we can decode it, that it was upsetting to her. Mm-hmm. Unwanted. Yes. She's physically sick. Yeah. Her digestive system is affected by it. Right. And yet she herself interprets it in a way that spiritualizes it. And this is a big problem. The whole concept of Tantra is where in, in you know, ancient India, you are going to do something that is taboo 
and that it's going to give you a spiritual realization. And that concept really allowed a lot of non nonsense to happen, which is normally this isn't what you would do, but this is a teaching. Mm-hmm. You know, the number of gurus that would pull this crap. And, um, you know, I mean, people, I, 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 I want to make sure I don't have to footnote things right now, but there are people that you would say are famous mm-hmm. gurus and, and, and leaders within the, the Hindu world that that would do this kind of stuff and then explain it away as a more spiritual teaching because they weren't sexual beings. Right. I mean, in fact, right. this is Ugh. this is what uh, Ram Das said about uh, Hoya. It was that she she claimed to be celibate, and and this is this is so much like the Catholic Church too. It's like sex is bad. Sex is going to get in the way of your spirituality. Also, we're going to do it on occasion so that you can learn a lesson. So, I mean, what you've got here again is you've got Ram Das who has probably received so many interesting insights in his own life, he thinks, through this guy. He takes down this information. He publishes this information and goes with her narrative, which is, oh, it's cute. He was like a little suckling baby. And, yeah, the other interesting thing, too, because she's still, she was there for two more years, even after all the physical symptoms. Right. And there for two years, and then would go into the room alone with him every single day for a whole month. This is going to come in at the end of our discussion here about why it is that we can't always trust that when people uh, pull back from an accusation, that that's legitimate. We'll get to that later. But the idea is that it's not that we're going to know better necessarily, but in a certain sense we do, that this isn't healthy. Right. right, so we can look at what somebody's saying, and they may not think that it's a problem, but it's possible to say, actually, girl, this is a problem. Well, and and also, yeah, just because she continues, yeah. So what you're, I think, what you're saying is, just because she continues in her path of of interacting with him, doesn't mean that it's not a serious problem. Right, or that we we can't say that. Well, uh, the Maharaji's fine because obviously she right. was okay she, with it. And she kept yes. That's the problem. The, right. pr- the, the problem is he's got the power to make her think it's okay, even as she's also the vomiting. And how many times have have you know even we ourselves been a, a part of something that then it's not until later when you get outside of it that you realize the the problem how problematic it actually was right. or right. or that it's you know unhealthy or whatever. There's all sorts of situations even in like. Dealing with like family relationships sometimes, yeah. right? Like you engage in a certain behavior and you don't realize until it stops. Like, oh, wait a minute, okay, that was really not okay. Yeah. Now, this morning, as we were talking about this, prepping for the show, Augie said, "You know, the the real takeaway is don't meet your heroes." <laughs> yes, because we all, everybody, everybody you know, will fail you. <laughs> I mean, it seems like I, I I get so nervous when people say, "Hey, I want to," you know, let's let's hang out, let's have uh, you know coffee or drinks or something. Um, I love the podcast, I love what you wrote or something. And I'll be going and speaking in front of a few thousand people. And that doesn't stress me out. What stresses me out is meeting with one or two people mm. who for some reason think that, you know, maybe I've got something to tell them <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to be on my B game, you know, right. make them disappointed. Um, not, not so much because I care that they think I'm great. It's just, I don't want to like, bum people out, you know right, what I'm saying? Because like, right. I, I know how that is, you right, know? Right, right. Although I have to say, when I met Mr. T when I was uh, in fifth grade, he's a good guy. I like Mr. T. <laughs> Mr. T was cool. Yes, he shook your hand. Yeah, I mean, not yeah. just that. He just he seemed like a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, 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 had the, he had the gold. He had the mohawk. He had, he, Mr. T, he showed up as Mr. T. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if Mr. T was just wearing like a wife beater shirt and didn't have the jewelry on, I might have been depressed. 
<laughs> Maybe for fun, you should put that photo on the show notes of you shaking hands with Mr. T. <laughs> Stacy, what I want to do before we, we, we take a pause here is to, to skip to Matthew 18. Because as we look at this, we, we're looking at, you know, kind of the ways in which we ask ourselves, what ought I to do now if I see that there's something not good going mm-hmm. on? Do I just stop talking to people? Do I just all of a sudden think, I hate this guy. I'm not going to listen to anything that they've said. I'm going to reject everything that they've said. Or is there something else? And this is going to help us transition to the question of of the rules of engagement for war. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to a personal level, Matthew 18 is often used for you know church communities to say, this is the formula for you to resolve problems like we just read about with, with the Maharaji, but in, in the case of a church, right? Mm-hmm. So you think that somebody's up to no good, and they say, well, did you follow Matthew 18? Would you read yes, the, the absolutely. relevant passage? It's uh, verses 15 through 17. Right. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. All right. This as we talked about before, forgiveness can be weaponized. Matthew 18 is one of the worst cases of the Bible being weaponized against abuse victims. Hmm. Did you go to the proper authorities first? <laughs> right? Right. And did you, yeah, did you follow this pattern, this, this method, right? right. And, I, and I could see, you know, if in Alice's situation, you know, it, it, her going to the brother or sister that is, is, causing this, you know, an un- unfortunate situation right. would be the better point rather than outing her to everybody first or him, right? right? That's, a per- that's a perfect application of that because this person isn't, you know, you know, poking Alice in the eye with a spoon. Right. And if you start, if you start with first, like come, if she comes in with her army of people that are going to back her up, you know, when she talks to this person, this person's just going to feel threatened, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and feel like it probably will just turn on the defensive. Right. And then you'll get nowhere. If Alice started to do exposés on what a piece of crap her friend is for doing this, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty significant move, right? Right. So that, that, you know, works well enough there, I think. I don't know all the but details. But then if it's, if it's some sort of traumatic, like sexual abuse or some other, you know. Crime. Fraud, anything big like that. I don't. You don't waste. You don't just go you alone with that person and, yeah. and confront the situation. It gives yeah. them time to to even cover up their tracks. Really, friends. Yeah. Friends, let us let us say it more clearly, just so we can be very, 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 very clear about this. If you are wondering whether or not you should report somebody who's doing something immoral and illegal, mm-hmm. right? And you think the Bible tells you that you need to go into a private room with this person and talk to him about it? No. That's not just, you don't have to do that. You shouldn't do that. Right. That's dangerous. Right. You know? Your own safety. That your own safety is. And risk. the cause will not prevail because what you're doing is you're saying, hey, I'm alerting, to, I'm, I'm alerting you to the fact that I might go to the authorities, at which point they're going to cover their tracks. They're going to destroy evidence. They're going to, uh, you know, maybe not. Maybe they'll repent and, and uh, be super swell. But 
very unlikely. Most likely what's going to happen is if you follow Matthew 18 with somebody who is a criminal, a predator, a religious wolf that is very clearly a religious wolf or a wolf of any kind, when you do that, you are giving them warning that will allow them to use all of their resources, their spiritual authority, their money, their influence, their power to... Wiping technology. <laughs> whatever it is to, to be able to preempt any, anything that you do. You want the element of surprise. You want to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. So any Christian who tells you that you need to follow Matthew 18 in the context of illegal activity... Mm-hmm is not giving you good advice. Not at all. Not a little bit. Not like maybe. No. Do not follow this. This is about you've got a grudge against somebody, and if you can win them over, you will win over a friend and a brother or a sister. Right. That is beautiful. And I want to expand a little bit further with Matthew 18, just for a second, because you know I've heard this many, many times growing up through the years, and and I it was just reading when I was reading it today. I was thinking, and then it says, "If they ref- the very end, if they ref- and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector." And I thought, you know, it's interesting because I thought, you know, that that's like so. Sometimes, as a result of this passage, there are times where a person will be excommunicated from a, a church because of a certain situation or how their their behavior, their actions. Right. Right. One thing that's interesting is I think about it. Who did Jesus hang out with? The pagans and the tax collectors. Right. He he sat next to them. They needed his teachings more. Right. But he he just wasn't it, it wasn't the brother sister relationship. It was yeah. you you don't see the light yet. Yeah. You don't have repentance yet. You still need to back up and hear the original message. Yeah. You know, that's and that's what's going on here. Not that you're yeah. kicking them out. As you if, don't treat them like crap. Yeah, they're not criminals. You know, yeah. if if it's if they're not criminals, sense, right? If they're <laughs> not. But it's it's the idea that you are then going to almost get it. more lovingly right. come alongside them and keep showing them the way. But they, you have to start back from the beginning because they don't get it. They never got the original message if they can't come over to your side. Yeah, don't treat somebody like they're Jesus woke if they're not Jesus woke. Exactly. But that doesn't mean that you treat them like crap. You treat them as if they need to learn something about true humanity. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah. very powerful. And these things, I mean, this is, this is the, the, the problem with all this. If the teachings of Jesus are helping you to navigate a very complicated world and the difficulties of that complicated world, well, then great. If the teachings of Jesus are hijacked mm-hmm. by bad religious actors to try to get you to shut up and ain't no good. And there was a time in our lives when somebody we knew was um, was involved with, you know, church discipline. People were mad, and they they were mad that they didn't consult the elders of the church mm. before they acted acted on their own life. And the problem was the bad guy in the situation was friends with the elders of the church and the pastors. Right, essentially, right? right? Or at least it was possible that that was true. And so And I even got in trouble from the pastor yeah. for even not advising this person that they go back to the church and listen to what what is being told to them. It was right. as if forcing I needed to help force this person in back into the situation. Yeah. I couldn't in good conscience do that. You know, I was yeah. actually 
like in tears on the phone. Yes. I was, and I was shaking. I was out of the country. I was, I was very I, unhappy I, yeah, about this. I was, I was by myself. Yeah. At the time in, 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 in the States. And I was just, I was just sh- like visibly shaking from you, this pastor giving me this call. And the pastor called you and was saying, you have to tell your friend to go to the church elders to get permission to do what they want to do or else they're going to get excommunicated. And if you don't, support the church against this person, then you also might be excommunicated you know, and you might be excommunicated, right? So that, that's kind of how this, this, how, how this thing works. But again, the problem is the first step it says is you go to the person. If you're in a power dynamic where you're equals, then do that. If you're somebody who is beneath the other person that's offended you in power, then you shouldn't go to them individually. That's a bad idea. Right. Likewise, if they're part of a cabal of people who are systematically supporting right. bad, abusive behaviors. Bad behavior or abuse, abusive problems. You shouldn't go to them either. Right. right? Right. And maybe you should just skip right to the church. Well, or if it is illegal, go right to the police in the beginning. Some people use Matthew 18 to try to tell you not to go to the police. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, that serves you well, doesn't it? No, 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 no. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or let's. Why don't you go to my friends who are on the elder board? Okay, you could do that too. You could do that too. I mean, that's that's the hustle, and it ain't yeah. no good. And we're only laughing because we see you coming, Molek. Yes, yes, it's not funny. It's I. We've been we've been in we've terrible been there. situations. We've it's been traumatic. in tears. Yes, yes. I've had digestive issues over yes, this. Yes, absolutely. Now the. The key, though, is there is a value to Matthew 18, and that is related to Sun Tzu's Art of War. In Sun Tzu's Art of War, there's a really interesting concept that I think is fantastic, and that is that when you're in battle, if you can take the other army whole, the, just, the language is taking whole. Can you take whole? That means instead of killing the army, instead of destroying the army, can you bring the army onto your side? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. then if you can do that, that's the biggest win. Right, absolutely. And that's what Matthew 18 is trying to say. Saying, if you can bring somebody to the light, yes. do it. If I can say this before we bring this first part to a conclusion, mm-hmm. and that is that in Matthew 18 and in Sun Tzu, The Art of War, this is the most beautiful picture in the whole world. It's not something that's demanded of you, friends. You, if somebody harmed you, your job isn't to turn them into saints. Mm. Mm-hmm. But it's, if that's your art, if that's something you want to try, give it a shot. We've done it. We've, we have been in situations in the last 12 months where people set themselves up as enemies, and we try to turn on love, and it worked. Yeah. Sometimes it didn't, but sometimes it worked. Right. And so this is advice that is helpful to you if you can do it and if you find it helpful. And then the problem goes away. If you can win yeah. them over, the problem, it, it, there's healing. And it, you increase the kingdom. Yes. You increase the love. You you win one for the team. You bring somebody right. else into the good guy's team. Right. That's what you want. Now, when we then go to the second part of this conversation, we're going to talk about war. We're going to talk about the ways that we should we should wage war. This is going to flow out from this idea of Sun Tzu taking hold. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the best way to win a war? Well, first, when do you go to war? Yeah. And, and then once you do engage in war, how do you go about doing it? That's some deep wisdom, and it's really, really important. Again, the first part of this conversation should, should leave you with this, this very deep confidence that you need to, Alice, everybody else, do what you need to do to take back the power in your own life. You are not needing to sit there and worry about whether or not you're allowed 
to be free mm-hmm. from bad people in your life. Okay, that's not it. Once you get that clear, and once you get yourself in a healthy place, if you want to go the next go to the next level, how can you help heal that other person that is your enemy? Well, that's what we're going to look at in the second part of this conversation. We'll pause there for now, friends. As you are going about your daily life, I hope that you are able to, with this, with this lens, go through it and see it through the eyes of peace, not trying to engage war, and then in the whole process, finding deep peace upon peace. Hey, friends. When we find things that we really dig, we definitely want to share them with you. And Boondockers Welcome is one of the coolest things that we've discovered while we've been on the road. All you have to do is pay a small annual fee and then you get access to staying with folks all across the U.S. And we have just been completely blown away by the instant community we found. And we've made lifetime friends that have gone above and beyond with their kindness and their generosity. If you go to our website, protectyournoggin.org, you'll find a link there where you can sign up and we think you'll enjoy it and you can help support the podcast at the same time. All you need is an RV or a camper with a toilet and cooking facilities, and then you can stay for free all around the country. Give it a try. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And we hope you enjoy it as much as we do. 